I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Thanks so much for downloading our podcast. You know, a lot goes into making a live wire show. There's booking our guests, writing sketches, there's rehearsing with a band and training the monkeys to knit the little microphone covers. Well, if you'd like to help with the cost of any of those activities, please consider visiting our website at livewireradio.org and clicking the donate button. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Wet cleanup on aisle 18, please. Mario, wet mop to aisle 18 for cleanup. Good afternoon, shoppers. In our cheese department, we're sampling delicious non-fat cheese curds. Taste them and you'll say, non-fat curds? No way! <laughs> And stop by the bakery today and check out our hot, fresh buns. And unlike Greg and Housewares, you won't get written up for harassment. Thanks for shopping. Wet cleanup in aisle 18, please. All courtesy clerks assist Mario on aisle 18 for a wet, sticky cleanup. Somebody bring the first aid kit and the fire extinguisher. Um, shoppers, without going into too much detail, it's a hot mess back there, so avoid the aisle 18 if you can. Have a nice day. Hello again, shoppers. It's a sausage fest in the meat department today, and... Again, shoppers, please avoid the growing situation in aisle 18, unless you know CPR. If you know CPR, please go to aisle 18 now, near the wet, sticky, hazardous spill and chemical fire. Thank you. Attention shoppers, visit our produce section and get a load of our kumquats. (laughs) Really, shoppers? What part of avoid aisle 18 did you not understand? It's the kosher, wheat, and gluten-free aisle. It's usually deserted. Yet all of a sudden it's crammed with looky-loos ogling the carnage of the horrific cleanup. 
Sure, something sick and wrong inside us makes us watch a train wreck, but be a better person and stay away. Unless you have a hazmat suit, or can identify and capture venomous snakes. Any of those things would be handy right now. Thanks for shopping with us. lady's smile. It's sweet and hot and has a shelf life longer than a Twinkie. Now half off with a 50% markup. It's, it's... From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, one giant wet spill and you're the mop. Come sop it up. It's Livewire. And now it's the host of Livewire who loves food so much she just got Restraining order for being a grocery stalker, Courtney Hammeister! Thank you so much, everybody. We are so excited to be here again in our new home at the Alberta Rose Theater. It's gorgeous, isn't it? And it's a great show. You're going to be so glad you came. We have a video game expert with us tonight, and he's here to talk about his book, Extra Lives, Why Video Games Matter. Tom Bissell is here. Woo to him. And if you, like me, are a fan of Burgerville Shakes, we've got a treat for you. Burgerville CEO Jeff Harvey is with us tonight. Might give us that recipe. And our musical guest is our favorite raucous bucket whacking blues band, Hill Stomp, is here tonight. But first, please meet the members of Faces for Radio Theater, Mr. Tyler Hughes. Tonight's fill-in face, Mr. Paul Glazier. The beautiful Laura Faith Smith. Our gorgeous siren of sound, Pat Janowski. And as usual, poet Scott Poole, the author of The Cheap Seats, he'll be out in the audience tonight writing feverishly as the show progresses. And then at the end of the show, he'll present us with a poem that he's written that encompasses everything we've learned during the night. So welcome, Scott Poole, and get to writing. Of course, we couldn't do any of it without our amazing house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Thanks, Ralph. So we are going to have Tom Bissell on later. He's going to be talking about video games. Now, I don't actually feel strongly either way about violence in video games. I don't play them, but, you know, you want to grab a virtual gun and go postal on some bad guys, more power to you. Except there's just this one game. Um, I'd read an article on Salon.com about Grand Theft Auto. It's a video game in which you... Uh, you steal cars, you kill drug dealers, you mow down pedestrians, um, which I'm fine with, most of those. Um, <laughs> but the reason they were talking about it on Salon is, if you want to, 
You can kill prostitutes randomly, but only if you want to. It's totally optional. It's not mandatory in any way to kill the prostitutes with a bat. So what, what you do is um, you pick them up and then you avail them of their services, which is actually in the game itself, which again, you know, I'm not, I'm not a prude. Uh, that's fine. But then if you want your money back, that's where you shoot them or mow them down or do whatever. Um, and, and I actually had a chance to see what it looks like. And for somebody who doesn't play video games, it's actually quite shocking. You know, somebody just sort of randomly shooting a lady in the head doesn't happen that often, say, in your afternoon walk in the park. But then I sort of thought to make myself feel better, you know, it's not just women that they can kill. You can mow down as many pedestrians as you want, uh, male or female. You can, you can go to Rampage. You can kill a city if you want. And that, that didn't make me feel better, really. <laughs> um, but I, I did, I went looking for more information about, about what drew people to this game, and I did find something that made me feel better. It was this story on a website called Bitmob, and it was about a gamer who had let his four-year-old play this game. And before you put together a mob and light your torches and find this kid's dad, you have to hear what happened. So he set him down, and he started playing it, and the kid drove the speed limit. He avoided pedestrians. <laughs> He ran across a police car and started driving around picking up bad guys. At one point, somebody got hurt and an ambulance came, and he was really excited about the sirens, so he started driving the ambulance and taking injured people to the hospital. And on the way to the hospital one time, they passed a fire truck, and he asked his dad if he could come back and drive it after he dropped off the sick guy. And then he spent the rest of the game driving around the virtual city of Las Venturas, putting out fires until every fire in the city was out. As you can imagine, his score was abysmal. It was appalling. <laughs> but it just made me wonder, like, what happens in those ensuing years, you know, between putting out fires and killing hookers for sport? You know, because that's the problem. If we could just avoid having anything happen to us ever, never get hurt or angry or damaged, then we'd all get really excited about video games where we get to drive something with a siren and help people. Although that sounds really boring, doesn't it, right now? <laughs> In any case, we'll figure it out when we talk to Tom later, but for now, let's get on with the show. Uh, tonight's band began in 2001, like all great bands do, in a basement over a good, healthy amount of beer. They're a little Mississippi trance blues, a little punkabilly, and absolutely nothing like your Uncle Phil's favorite blues band. Nothing against your Uncle Phil. Their last studio record was rated in the top 50 blues records of 2006 by the UK's Blues Matters magazine, and they're here to play a couple songs off their brand new CD, Darker Than Night. Please welcome in Music We Trust recording artists, Hill Stomp.
Thanks a lot, Courtney. It's, it's great to be good back. good to have you. Um, just for our radio audience, uh, you should know that uh, John, who's playing drums, lost both his hat and his glasses during the course of that song because he was rocking so hard. And his shoes. Yeah, his shoes flew off, and yeah, his head came off his neck. It was amazing. You should come to a live show, radio audience. Um, <laughs> So uh, the first time that I ever saw you, I think, was in Eugene. I think we've talked about this. 2002 around. Like, you guys just had started back then. And I'd never seen anything like it, of course, back then. But you guys have toured so much since then. And, and you've had a, it's like three records or four? We just put out our fourth record. Yeah. yeah. So what, what have you learned during the course of all that touring? Like, what's probably the biggest lesson you've learned? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> No, bring more socks than you think you're going to need. That's the biggest one. Um, and if you wear underwear, probably bring a lot of that, too. Um, and then... That didn't take long, did it? That didn't take long. Most bands don't need that uh, advice, I don't think. Um, and always have, a, like, a, this is something that a friend told me, always have a, a can of beans in your backpack and something to open it with, because at some point you're going to need food and there's going to be nothing around. So just open the beans, get a... Seriously, being a traveling musician is just like being a hobo. They're the, they're the same rules. So, so pack a lot of socks in your bindle. Socks and beans. That's what you're saying. That's um, all you need. <laughs> so your last record was called The Woman That Ended the World. And uh, this record uh, is noted to be darker than that one. So um, <laughs> what's going on with you guys? Let's talk. I'm worried about you guys. How are you? Well, I've always liked songs that sort of like make you feel happy and they sound happy. I mean, kind of like, and I think that last song, it's a really happy song. Very much so. But when you dig into the lyrics, you know, there's, there's, there's some other stuff going on inside that. You know, I've always liked songs that do that. Well, and that's kind of what the blues are about, right? That's Where? turning something into a celebration. Yeah. Right. For sure. The blues ain't sad. The, the, you know, the blues is like... The party after the problem, you know? That's how I see it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that there are writers who write themselves out of darkness, and there are writers who write themselves into it. Do you guys fall into either of those categories? You know, <laughs> I guess it's just a circle, really, more than anything else. We sort of write ourselves around in a circle. I, I just rhyme. That's, that's it. Yeah, that's just, just like you, you get no. the word, like if you're going to rhyme the word, like if it ends with time, you go B, bon, no, B, C, cr crime, <laughs> dime. Don't, don't tell them all your secrets. Don't tell them all your secrets No, now. that's how you do it. <laughs> Write one line and then just use the alphabet. Now you know. Now you can write your own hill stomp songs. Good luck to you. Well, you guys are going to come back later and sing another song for us. It's great to be back. We love it Thank you so Thanks much for, for coming back. He'll stop.
And here is your seat, sir. I hope you enjoy your meal. I'll be back momentarily. Uh, how will we know? How will you know what, sir? How will we know you're back? I mean, we can't see anything, so how will we know you're, you know, hovering? I'll speak and ask for responses. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Thanks. You're welcome, sir. I swear, Roy, if you embarrass me tonight, I will not forgive you. I'm sorry. It's just that it's pitch black in here, and you know I'm afraid of the dark. That is the whole point, Roy. It's a blind restaurant. It's pitch black so that our senses of taste and smell are heightened. Right, like that time Chi-Chi smelled that rotting squirrel in the Henson's yard. Remember that? I do, Roy. That was gross. Yes, it was. Now, can we forget about that and try to enjoy a more sensually engaging meal for once? Sensually engaging. Are you coming on to me? Because I can't tell without seeing if your eye is doing that twitchy thing. I'm not coming on to you, Roy. Well, fine. Then I'm not coming on to you either. Excellent. Oh, no. How am I supposed to be able to tell if there's a floaty in my water? I don't know. I feel like there is one. It's just sitting there waiting for me to take a sip. Roy. How'd the waiter fill it anyway? He probably had to put his finger in there to make sure it hit the top and... Now it's going to taste like waiter finger. Oh, my God. Can we just wait for our food and be quiet? Fine. But what if they're about to feed us human flesh? I don't know what that smells like, but I feel like I'd know if I saw it. Quiet. Great, great. All right. Oh, my God. Was that you? Was what me? I just felt something rub against the back of my leg. How exactly would I rub against the back of your leg from over here? I don't know. You're wily and unpredictable. It wasn't me. There it is again. What did I say about embarrassing me? Okay, that's, that's a tentacle. What? Okay, yeah. Uh, it's a giant tentacle, Barbara. Yeah, something's picking me up. If you are trying to test my patience... No, I'm not, I'm not trying to test anything. Yeah, this is very gooey tentacle. You know, this darkness really helps me sense the stickiness. This is great, honey. If you don't stop this right now, I am leaving. Ow! What are you doing? Ow! Don't worry about it, honey. Just me being slammed out of some sort of metal table repeatedly. Think, think they might be trying to get me to pass out. Waiter, can we get the check, please? Oh. Uh, yeah, and there's the probe. There's the probe. I always thought those probe stories were just a cover-up for men who were uncomfortable with their sexuality, but... Uh, Oh, there it is. That's it. I'm leaving. Don't you want to wait to see what they implanted in me? You know, I hope it's one of those little baby aliens with the teeth inside the teeth. Inside the teeth. I'll see you at home, you freak. Okay, you know, might be bringing a little something home, uh, something home with me. Little brother for Chi-Chi. It's going to chew its way through my chest. You're disgusting. Sir, can I get you your check? Okay, be honest. Is this place just a cover for a massive alien implantation campaign? Pretty much. Alrighty, well, can you take my water out in the light and check it for floaties? Oh, right away. You're listening to Livewire Radio with music, conversation, and comedy. We stimulate every part of your brain, including the area responsible for keeping track of which one is Dermot Mulroney and which one is Dylan McDermott. <laughs> Coming up, author Tom Bissell on video games, Burgerville CEO Jeff Harvey, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to LiveWire. Our next guest is the author of Chasing the Sea, God Lives in St. Petersburg, and the Father of All Things. He's written for Harper's Magazine, The New Republic, and is a frequent reviewer for the New York Times Book Review. He is also an obsessive gamer, in fact, for a time too obsessive, and believes that video games aren't just a distraction, but an art form. And now millions of adults spend hours every week playing them, and the video game industry reliably out-earns Hollywood, so Bissell believes it's an art form we should really start to take more seriously. Please welcome the author of Extra Lives, Why Video Games Matter, Tom Bissell. A delight to be here. <laughs> so you, you've written short stories, literary criticism, satire. Um, why, why write about video games now? What was it that struck you? Well, there was uh, a point, uh, I would say around 2005, 2006, going on into 2007. You know, I played games most of my life. Uh, I'm sure a few people here have. And I'd always, you know, admired them as a, as a you know, uh, entertaining and, and cunning form of diversion uh, and then, like around 2006, I started playing a few games um, that really began pushing buttons into, in me that I had previously associated with, shall we say, higher forms of, of art. Um, questions that made me think about character and form and, and questions of you know, human empathy and, and human motivation and sort of what pushes our buttons morally. And so, uh, little by little, and certainly not as often as I would like, uh, and still not as often as, as I would like, um, I just I was coming into contact more and more frequently with games that were doing something to me other than entertain me. And that seemed to me something uh, that was worth writing about. How often do you think that um, some of those messages that you were getting from the games or reading into the games were, were specifically put in as messages or subtext by the people who created them? And how much of it do you think might have been you reading into it a little bit. I think you'd be surprised. Uh, you know, a lot of people making games are super smart. And, oh, yeah. And um, they're um, really sophisticated, ele- elegant thinkers. And some of the people I profile in this book, um, uh, like 20 years ago, they may have been really smart filmmakers or really promising young short story writers, and now they're video game designers. And, and I don't want to overstate the case. It's true that there's an awful lot of, you know, crap and yeah. uh, a lot of, um, you know, pretty worthless experiences to be had in the video game medium, but there are also, and this can't be said enough, there are also some really startling and really beautiful experiences to be had in this medium. Well, and part of, uh, part of being art is having a point of view, and how many of these games do you feel have a really strong point of view, have something very powerful to say, and do you have an example of one that you think is... Um, yeah, uh, well, you know, we brought up GTA, uh, Grand Theft Auto, before. Um, one thing that people don't talk about enough about that particular game, which I'm a big fan of, is that it's it's a satire. Um, it's actually really funny. Um, yes, it can let you do all sorts of really dark, disturbing things, but it, it, it's, it's, there are two kinds of ways to play it. There's the sandbox aspect of it, where you're just a little person moving through a city, and that you realize more and more, oh, gosh, I can do all sorts of really terrible things. <laughs> or you can ride around an ambulance and help people. Right. Um, the point is that it gives you a system with which you can interact. And so uh, the GTA games, the whole 
subtext of them is like the idiotic excess of American culture. Um, and the haymakers it swings at American excess, it makes pretty frequent contact with them. Though. Well, yeah, I mean, in the, if you, the, the radio stations a lot of times are playing sort of Rush Limbaugh um, yeah. uh, parodies, uh, TV stations, the parodies of company names, huge corporation names. Yeah, yeah, my favorite thing to do in GTA is to retire to my apartment, turn on the television, and watch a cartoon show called Republican Space Rangers. Um, <laughs> which they, they fly around in this phallus-shaped spaceship, and uh, they have an insurgent scam that tells them which planets have insurgents on them, and they blow them up, and then uh, commend themselves for freeing mankind. Uh, it's actually it's really funny, and uh, um, there's all sorts of stuff like that in the game, that despite its you know, reputation, um, there's actually some pretty smart stuff in it. Well, you talk a lot in the book about, about the shifting of, real, of life reality and game reality. You had an experience in a game that you felt guilty about after you played the game, which I found fascinating. Frequently. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, the, and you also had an experience in a role-playing game where you um, discovered a line that you didn't realize that you had. Um, you, you, it was the, the religious line, which I found really interesting. Yeah, well, this is the cool thing about games. And as dopey as their stories sometimes are... Um, only games of any form of storytelling entertainment, like a film that may depict a dramatic situation that will, someone will fool-heartedly stand up for some principle, uh, and a novel may show someone betray their inner principle. But game storytelling is really cool because it presents a situation that actually pushes you, the actor, the character that you're portraying on screen, will push you up to some drawn line of moral obligation. And in the case of this game was... I had to uh, confront my own animosity toward organized religion and sort of uh, confront uh, a character who, who uh, needed me to do something for him, but it, it, it involved me uh, buying for him an evangelical permit <laughs> to preach on a street corner. And he was a very harmless character, but I, I found to my mild astonishment I could not do that. And um, you, you probably, during the course of this game, had probably I'd, slashed some people oh, yeah, up I'd, with I'd, not... I'd, I'd, I'd shot hundreds of people in this game so far. <laughs> it's so what, fascinating to What me. really interested me was that like, there are certain things that suddenly games make... They make you live with the fi fictional consequences of a choice and the way that other storytelling mediums can only depict. But games actually make you... They turn around and point right at you and say... You're going to do this thing. How are you going to feel about it afterwards? And I've frequently done things in games like kill people in GTA, for instance, and just looked at the screen and thought, that was not a pleasant feeling, you know? Um, and uh, that's, like, an interesting thing. No one's telling you to do stuff. It just sort of lets you do it as you're on your own time. It's a, it's a strange sensation. Yeah. Well, and, and when, you tell you, when you tell stories in the book about experiences that you've had in the virtual world, it sounds like you're telling a story about something you did. You know, you've saved lives in wars, and you have specific memories of games that you played where you did very heroic things. Um, are, you, are you concerned at all with the amount of time that people are spending living virtual lives? It, it's happening with social networking as well, where we, we, have all the, we have all these virtual friendships that aren't really real. Like, are you concerned that we're sort of losing hours of our lives that could be lived yeah. with people yeah. that we can touch? Yeah, I definitely do. And I can just say, you know, my, my day job, other than being a... a a professor is I'm also a travel writer, so I've been all over the world. I've been to Africa, I've been in, you know, uh, been into war zones, I've been to the Arctic, and I have to think that those experiences weirdly enrich my game playing time. But if you were to ask me to like trade one of those things, uh, I mean, I would 
throw the video game console away faster than you could say Xbox. Um, so there's definitely a sense that if I didn't have those other experiences to sort of build off my video game experiences with, yeah, I, I think anyone who spends all of their time interacting with any medium, whether it's, you know, films or novels or games, are, are really doing themselves a, a disservice. Right. Um, you're actually really, you sort of buried the lead in this book, um, because it was the last chapter. Um, you were really candid about your addictions to both gaming and cocaine. You actually wrote really beautifully about what, I was wondering if you could just read this quickly, um, about sort of falling in love with, what falling in love with cocaine is like. Oh boy, sure. Um, (laughs) this comes after a line where I, 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 I write, uh, when I'm, When I was on cocaine, I became as harmlessly ravenous as Cookie Monster. Um, This stage, lamentably and predictably, did not last long. Doing cocaine for more than a couple of days is a little like falling in love with someone who is attractive, friendly, adoring, devious, manipulative, evil, and congenitally incapable of loving you in return. But this person feels so unnaturally good and makes you feel so unnaturally good about yourself that you accept this as a fair bargain. When the deal you make with cocaine sours, and it will... Your mind is as empty as a pasture, your basal ganglia shredded. You are now the moon to cocaine's sun. With it, you are bright indeed. Without it, you are nothing more than a cratered rock, stupidly afloat in space. You want to glow again. You do more cocaine. You do not glow, but you do feel somewhat normal. Soon you are doing cocaine not to feel radiant, but to feel like yourself. Cocaine is no longer the sun, but a hangman. This is how his noose tightens. And around my neck, that rope tightened more quickly than I could have imagined. It's a great passage. <laughs> well, that's kind of a bummer to end on. Um, but, what, but, but he's fine now. So... <laughs> um, what are, just very quickly, what's your hope for the future of video games? What do you want to see? I hope they get less stupid. Uh, and, I, and I hope uh, more really talented... Um, people more interested in the broader range of human experience get drawn into making them. And I, and I hope more and more they decide to comment on things other than the way armaments pierce human flesh. You know, but um, I think there is coming a generation of games that are going to come that are really going to show us you know, what it means to be a human being rather than what it means to be a combatant. Yeah. Well, that sounds good to us. The book is Extra Lives, Why Video Games Matter. Uh, thank you so much thank for you. joining us. Tom Bissell, everybody. was author Tom Bissell, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. Variety is right there in our name, if you switch the letters around and spell it V-A-R-I-E-D. All right, it's really not in our name, um, but it's in our show. And if you live in the Portland area, come to our October 22nd show at the Alberta Rose Theater in the heart of the Alberta Arts District. Guests include the creators of Grievous Angel, The Legend of Graham Parsons, Sean Flynn, and The Royal We, Curtis Salgado, and others. Visit our website at livewireradio.org for more information, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to Livewire. Ah, Montana. Montana is a massive and dangerous place. We have huge, treacherous mountain ranges full of savage beasts, jagged rocks, and menacing lightning storms. But we also have lots of pretty birds, blue skies, and colorful flowers. Montana, not all our natural beauty wants to kill you. Montana is chock full of violent radical cults and militias, each one teeming with psychopaths and murderers that want to bring down the government and kill anyone who stands in their way. But we also have lovely towns with charming people ready to welcome you with open arms. Montana, a lot of us aren't crazy. In Montana, people drive their cars at speeds over 100 miles per hour, and giant mule deer lurk around every hairpin turn, ready to destroy your car and murder your family. But we also have one of the highest-rated highway systems for performance and cost-effectiveness. And one of the highest road fatality rates. Stop it! Montana, a lovely state for a drive at a reasonable speed with your seatbelt on. Montana is the most terrifying and hellish place imaginable. It should be nuked, napalmed, and sealed with an impenetrable force field never to be heard or seen again. Okay, um, hang on. Uh, let me see. All right, we also have a grocery store. Montana! Wants to blacken and putrefy everything wholesome and pure on Earth. Come on now. What? Well, you can't just tell people not to come to Montana. What about our tourism industry? Tourism schmorism Montana is a dreadful murderous place. Boiling with hatred like so many pus-filled blisters. Jeez, just stop that. It's not that bad. We have lots of pretty trees and stuff, too. Hey, what are you doing, man? I'm trying to scare people away so we can have all the candy to ourselves. Candy? What candy? Montana has a huge cave full of delicious candy right in the middle of the state. Really? Candy, huh? But that's it? That's the whole reason you're doing this? Well, there's some great whores there, too. Ah. And money... And fishing. Okay. It's also got whores and money and fishing. Yeah, yeah, I got it. So what do you say, partner? Let's tell people how frightening and terrible Montana is. For the whores. You got it, pal. Montana! Stay the hell away! Yeah, stay the hell away! Oregon restaurant chain Burgerville was started in 1961 by a man named George Propstra. Almost 50 years later, the chain has grown to 39 restaurants. It's one of the only fast food chains in the country that features local, sustainably grown foods, including seasonal favorites like sweet potato fries, Walla Walla onion rings, and chocolate hazelnut milkshakes that inspire many Oregonians to openly sob with joy in the drive through line. Some that I know intimately. 
Our next guest has been president and CEO of Burgerville since 2008. He's instigated innovative policies like allowing bicycles in the drive-thru and including nutrition information right on the receipt. Please welcome a man I'm really hoping brought a milkshake, Jeff Harvey. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hi, Courtney. Great it's to great be here. To, yeah, it's great to have you. We're all big fans of your work. <laughs> I, have to keep, I have to keep telling people, I don't cook everything. I uh-huh. just kind of run the company. <laughs> and you didn't bring a shake. It's so weird that you I didn't bring a shake. You said that about four times already. <laughs> <laughs> so, actually, before working at Burgerville, you worked for energy companies. I did. And you have a background in uh, electrical engineering. I so do. So what brought you to Burgers? Um, uh, it's an interesting story. Uh, um, Tom Mears, our chairman, was a good friend of mine for many years, and I was back in Michigan working for a technology company doing fuel cells and, and photovoltaics and all sorts of interesting science. Um, and he gave me a call one day saying, I know this is a crazy idea, Jeff, but uh, I'm looking for somebody to help grow our company, and you and I think alike and we have the same values and uh, what you consider changing industries. And my first answer was, you've got to be nuts, Tom. I mean, do you really want an engineer you know, running restaurants? Mm-hmm. And he said, um, oh, I get that, Jeff, but at the core of our company, the mission served with love is really what's most important. And, and you and I are so aligned on that mission and so aligned on the values, that's the most important thing. And he invited me out for a day and uh, told me about the business. And by the end of that day, we said, this sounds like something interesting. Well, how do you think that your engineering background has served you on this job? I, I tell people who ask that question that basically an engineering background is, is you're, you're taught to be a problem solver. You know, so fundamentally, I just I have an ability to look at problems and kind of address them in a clear fashion and, and help bring solutions. Okay. Yeah. I was just taught to be a problem. So I got, no, I got no solutions for that. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> So uh, on your website, you list all every company listed as as a food source on your website is in the Northwest, like oh. Harry's Fresh Fruits in Portland, pickles from Mount Vernon, Washington, uh, fries from Pasco, Washington, artisan cheeses from Rogue Creamery in Central Point. Um, when did this local sourcing policy start with you guys, and what was the reasoning behind it? Well, all, all I really did was extend the policy. When you go back to the first days of Burgerville in 1961, um, everything we did was in relationship with local suppliers. So it was kind of embedded in the company to begin with when the company started. Both Tom and I grew up locally here. You know, um, I, I worked Filbert Orchards in, in Tualatin and dairy farms in Tigard. And so all this was really important to us. So I said, let's just bring that forward. It's there anyway. Why not, why not bring it to the front? And there are companies from around the country who are actually looking to Burgerville to see how you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Don't you want to lie to them so they'll fail miserably? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, say, I'll put it to you this way. We, when they show up in our restaurants, and usually we hear this from general managers who call the office saying, there's a bunch of suits sitting in the dining room, and we don't know what they're doing, but they won't leave. <laughs> and when we hear that kind of a message, and it's happened more than once, we tell them, well, don't go out there and tell them every secret we have, but, but serve them you know, the way we would serve anybody else. So you know, we're not really worried about secrets. I mean, in the biz- time we've been in business, I think the Tillamook uh, pepper bacon cheeseburger came out for us in 95. There's lots of Tillamook cheeseburgers around now. Yeah. People still come back to Burgerville. We're not, we're not concerned about that. You know, I think the more we can help promote fresh, local, sustainable with other businesses, we're all for it. And you actually, you've also instigated a policy, I think this was in 2009, where you guys started using seasonal ingredients 
in, in each item, there would be a one seasonal ingredient. Well, what we actually did is we created a strategy um, around um, a regular rotation of seasonal. So, for example, fans of Walla Walla onion rings or fans of sweet potato fries, those seasonal products have been around for quite a long time. <laughs> yep. Um, what we did is we said, you know, there's a lot of interest in that. What, what if we could actually do that on a monthly basis? So what we did in 2009 was actually look at um, what was fresh and local every month and created um, a more of a gourmet profile um, offering each month off of those seasonal ingredients. And that's a, that's a shift. I mean, I think in terms of socioeconomics, it's generally more difficult. That's why, that's why people go to McDonald's generally. And so was there an aspect of this where you wanted to try to bring these kinds of foods to people who might not be able to go to uh, an expensive restaurant? Yeah, absolutely. We, we were watching the business trends. We saw that people were having a tougher time, you know, going to the fine dining restaurants with the money they had available. So why not try to do that? I mean, the other thing we were trying to do, and this has been a, a kind of a pet project of mine since I joined the company, is, you know, all of us know that, that um, quick service has a, a bad reputation in terms of quality and health. And, and when I looked at it, you know, maybe it's just the engineer in me, I don't know, but but when I looked at it, it's a, it's a delivery model. It's about efficiency and delivery. That doesn't necessarily mean that quality has to go down the tubes. So we like to play this, this challenge ourselves and say, what can we deliver that's going to surprise somebody through the drive-thru that challenges this paradigm around quick service? Right. Because to us, it's a delivery model. So if we can do something great through the drive-thru that will surprise you, that's what we like to do. And another policy that you've, that you've instigated that's gotten national attention is uh, the putting the, I think it's called Nutricate. Oh, yeah. is the program, and you actually have, uh, it's f- specifically the meal that you got is on your receipt, and all the nutritional information is on there. Correct. Was there any concern that this would actually make people not get the meal the next time? And has that happened at all? Because this, this went into effect in May? Um, yeah, there was some concern about that, but, but what we were watching, and, and we'll all see more of this as time goes by, we're looking at the, the um, trend to legislate menu labeling. Mm-hmm. And, and that trend is talking about let's post the calorie count on every menu item on the menu board so that guests know what they're going to buy. And the concern that I had with that is in our, in our restaurants anyway, most everybody customizes what they buy. They, they rarely just buy the thing that's on the menu. They want to change something. Mm-hmm. And, and we have a lot of guests that have allergies and a lot of guests that have health, health issues. And so if all you do is pat, post a calorie count, that doesn't provide a useful tool that they can use to manage their diet. So I found Nutricate at one of the trade shows I, I go to for the industry, and this was a system that actually customized it to what you ordered. And so we thought that would actually provide a tool. Now, for the first visit, it's not going to tell them much, but as they come back again, it's going to give them information they can use to steer their order. Right, and then it also indicates if you want to save 180 calories, you can exactly. ask to not get the Chipotle mayo. Exactly. You know, not that I know the menu. Or I've ever been there. <laughs> what, I, what I thought you were going to say and you didn't is that if you want that shake and you want that, you know, uh, mocha perk or that blackberry shake right now, but you want to count your calories, go ask for the smoothie. Because the smoothie significantly lower calories, same flavor profile. Um, so, and I wanted to talk briefly, there is a huge food cart boom in Portland mm-hmm. and it's sort of happening all over the country. Big and you guys it, yeah. have a food cart now, the Nomad. We do. Um, you have 39 locations. What made you do a food cart? Well, it, it, it's just what you said. I, you know, I'm, I'm a, a foodie myself. I follow the trends. I love the food cart boom in Portland and the surrounding areas. I, I spent a lot of time at the food carts, and I watched, more than anything else, I was intrigued by the relationship between the guests and the proprietors. I've watched people stand in line at food carts for all, for endlessly. Yeah. And they don't deviate, and they say, why are you standing here? Because I love this guy, I love this food, I love what they stand for. 
And I thought, with that kind of loyalty, there's got to be something about this. And, and with that, we started the Nomad. What I learned since starting it, though, is that it's with no counter between you and the guest, you actually build a deeper relationship than you would otherwise. Mm-hmm. And most of the people who work the Nomad um, are the um, uh, highly skilled guest interaction uh, uh, resources in our company. Do you have a favorite menu item at the, I at do. the Burgerville restaurant? I do. It may, may surprise people, but my favorite menu item is our Yukon white bean basil burger. Oh, that sounds lovely. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah. I like the Yukon gold fries quite a bit. <laughs> Yukon gold fries and shakes. I'm going to remember this because I'll, I'll come surprise you someday. You, you'll wait. Great. Now, what some people may not know about you yeah. um, is that you play guitar. I do play guitar. And um, I think that you're going to play a little something with our band right now. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Harvey. Jeff Harvey, the CEO of Burgerville, and you're listening to Livewire Radio, now available as a podcast, and not in that invasion of the body snatchers kind of way, in the way that we all emerge from pods as alien versions of ourselves, record the show, and then offer it up to you on the internet. Well, yeah, I guess it is in that way. Um, My bad. Available every Monday on iTunes and at our website at livewireradio.org. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Hill Stomp.
promised, a man who's been working for the last hour feverishly writing poetry so we can all learn something tonight, a man who has sacrificed for all of us, please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. Don't deny it. I learned tonight that many of you want to carry a weapon. (laughs) Not something modern and easy like a gun in a video game, but something ancient and archetypal like you'd find in a video game. (laughs) A piece of art that feels substantial, that feels heavy in your hand like a broadsword, a crossbow, or a Tillamook cheeseburger. (laughs) I need a broadsword now! But the only thing I have around the house is this mop. No, not one of those weenie Swiffer deals, but the kind your Uncle Earl used to swing around the junior high, the kind that weighs 250 pounds wet and might break your wrists if you're not careful. Hillstomp proves you can use a mop as an instrument of death. (laughs) Hillstomp makes me feel like I could be dangerous with a mop. Like I'm on the back of a motorcycle careening through columns of smoke, driving through a forest, screaming at my lungs' limit with a mop strapped to my back and a bucket on my head and a trail of soapy water spraying out the back of the mop 
the white hair whipping out behind like the beautiful locks of a honky-tonk princess. Bullets are bouncing off the bucket, and I'm not sure who's shooting or who's even driving. But I don't mind, because I just swing the mop around my head with a rebel yell, Woohoo! And it just feels right, you know, because you have to fight trying to find the light through the pines. But wait, it's a weapon of death and a handy household item. A mop has a beautiful duality, just like a video game. It all depends on your mood. Like they do in Montana, you can attack someone ruthlessly with it. Or just be nice and mop the floor for them after hard days of work. But if the relationship sours, you can always turn around and kill them when they're not looking. And you've got something handy to clean up the murder scene when you're done. <laughs> if Burgerville ever turns into a completely dark, sensory, and heightening restaurant, a mop could not only be used as a weapon, it could be used as a human decoy in an alien induction situation. <laughs> Plus, a mop is your passport into any building. Think about it. No one stops a happy person with a mop at the door. Like the back door of a Burgerville, for instance, where they keep all the free cheeseburgers. Jeff, thanks for looking out for us in the environment, but you better keep an eye out for suspicious janitors driving up on motorcycles with buckets on their head. Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for coming out. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Tom Bissell, Jeff Harvey, and Bill Stone. The Mutton Chops were Ralph Huntley, Jim Brumberg, and Dave Jorgensen. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Fitch & Associates, The Falcon Art Community, Willamette Week, and Buchanan, Angeli, Altschul, and Sullivan. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the Miller Foundation, and listeners such as you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Hotel Deluxe. Livewire is created and produced by Kay Sokoloff and Robin Tannenbaum. Technical production by Jim Brumberg from Mississippi Studios. Recording engineering by Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Jeff Hilton Simmons. Special thanks to the Rose City Sound. The faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Tyler Hughes, and Sean McGrath. And performers Laura Faye Smith, Paul Glazier, and Siren of Sound Pachinowski. Livewire's house poet is Scott Poole. This show's guest writer was Timmy Williams of The Whitest Kids You Know on the Independent Film Channel. Production management and lighting by Drew Flint. Stage management by Stephen Alexander. Theme by Courtney Mondrelli and Ralph Huntley. Craft services by Old Wives Tales. Graphic and web design by Danger Creative. Web development by Amalgamotion. Podcast consulting by Morley Studios. Our operations manager is Adrian Schaefer. Publicity by Cassell Communications. Thanks to Joe Cawley, Adam East, and the entire staff at the Alberta Rose Theater. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. This is Tyler Hughes saying, the show is over. I can finally stop sucking in my gut. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered 
right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.